Okay, so last week we were continuing to explore the second noble truth, which is that the cause of suffering is craving, clinging, resisting. And we were looking specifically at comparing mind or mana as a particular aspect of craving for becoming and craving for non-becoming. And we saw how the comparing mind can be a significant source of social anxiety because it's both fed by and it enhances our common tendency to navigate the world from a sense of lack, from a sense of inadequacy and not enoughness. So as an antidote to all that, and as a protection against it, I introduced the Brahma-Vihara of Mudita, of appreciative joy. And I'm hoping that you're beginning to experience a shift in the arc of your practice over these five weeks so far. A shift that mirrors the longer term trajectory of our Dharma practice overall. Basically from entanglement in afflictive mental states towards increasing moments of ease, of happiness, of peace, of freedom. So this is the general pattern that's woven throughout all of the Buddha's teachings. And we see it also in the way the Four Noble Truths are are laid out. The First Noble Truth, there is suffering. Second Noble Truth, there is a cause of suffering. Third Noble Truth, there is an end of suffering. Fourth Noble Truth, there is a path that leads to the end of that suffering. So the first two truths are acknowledging that there is dukkha and it has a cause. And the last two are taking us into the possibility of freeing ourselves from dukkha and how to achieve that. And I want to keep emphasizing this shift towards freedom, towards ease, towards happiness. Because as I've shared with some of you before, in my own experience, when I first would hear about these Four Noble Truths, I'd hear them something like this, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering. Because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, where we tend to focus on what's painful, difficult, challenging, and we can lose sight in that formulation of the fact that it's all about in the service of ever-deepening happiness. So we've spent four weeks so far exploring how fear comes up and hopefully also each of us is now finding ways to manage that fear, that anxiety more skillfully and in the process to begin to experience more and more moments of non-anxiety, of ease, of acceptance, openness, even courage. So I want to keep pointing us to the positive side of the scale now because for many of us this can be quite challenging as some of you named in relation to mudita it can feel very foreign to be connecting with what's going well and what's successful and so on we're so used to wrestling with our difficulties that we might not even notice when we're in the terrain of non-anxiety of ease and confidence and courage and this is really the terrain of the third noble truth that there is a cure for dukkha, it's possible for it to end. It's a treatable condition, a treatable dis-ease. So the actual words from the text, cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is the remainderless fading and ceasing, giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting all of that same craving. 
So as we let go of craving, clinging, resistance, in its place we experience freedom on deeper and deeper levels, leading all the way to nibbana, awakening, liberation, which is why I was kind of pushing you a little when I said, even though we might not think that we're on the path to awakening, every nanosecond when there is a moment of ease, of peace and freedom is a foretaste of the deeper possibility of Nibbana. So now we come to the... I'm going to talk about Nibbana more next week so we can go out with a bang, so to speak. I'll save that for next week. Today I'd like to focus on this shift from releasing afflictive states to abiding in skillful states. In terms of the theme of the course, from fearlessness, from fear to fearlessness, which for most of us takes training. And again, we're fortunate that it's supported by the two wings of wisdom and compassion. And today, as I said earlier, because there was so much material, I'm just going to focus on the wisdom wing and we'll come back to the other wing next week. So the wisdom wing includes the practices of mindfulness and insight. And we started in the beginning of the course by bringing mindfulness to the body and to physical sensations, learning to recognize the physical symptoms of anxiety and fear. And then we moved to paying direct attention to the mind itself, bringing awareness to qualities of mind, to mind states, as we were doing in our practice together in dyads when we were just taking turns to name out loud different qualities of mind. And when it comes to fear and fearlessness, how we think about those experiences plays a huge role either in releasing them or prolonging them. So those of you who are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness, you know that the third establishment is mindfulness of the mind itself. And in this part of the discourse, we're asked to recognize when particular mind states are present and when they're absent. So just as a sample, I'll read you a few phrases from the sutta because they wait they convey a particular way of being with our experience of the mind. And how, practitioners, does one, in regard to the mind, abide contemplating the mind? Here, one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. And then it goes through a few more different qualities of mind. And then one knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated, and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated mind to be liberated, and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. So you might have noticed in that sequence that the first three mind states that are singled out for attention are lust, anger, and delusion, which you may remember are basically those three core energies we explored back in week one or two. The energies of greed or compulsion, hatred or aversion, ignorance or delusion. And remembering that Hatred or aversion also includes fear. 
And then from these more gross, you could say, afflictive states, the sutta progresses to increasingly more subtle ones. For example, knowing whether the mind is contracted or distracted, and then knowing whether it's concentrated, unconcentrated, liberated or unliberated. And I wanted to read the actual text because the language is significant. It's completely impersonal. The Buddha doesn't say, notice when you are lustful or angry or deluded. He doesn't even say, notice when your mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. He says to simply know whether these mind states are present or not. And right there is the invitation to understand that these mind states are arising due to impersonal causes and conditions. We don't need to identify with them. We don't need to hold on to them. We don't need to take them personally. We also don't need to get rid of them. All we're instructed to do is know when they're present, know when they're absent. That's all. So the language is completely impersonal and it's also completely impartial. There's an attitude of equanimity built into this investigation. Is a mind state present? Is it absent? That's all. And this is very different from our usual way of relating to mind states. Most of us have a tendency to only see one side of that balance, to only notice when a mind state is present and not when it's absent. So, for example, with fear, we're much more tuned into noticing when fear is there than noticing when it isn't. So that's the mind's negativity bias at work again, selectively emphasizing pleasant, unpleasant experiences and filtering out or ignoring unpleasant ones. So even my biases, I'm getting it the wrong way around when I'm saying it. So emphasizing unpleasant, filtering out pleasant. So this invitation in the third establishment of mindfulness is a very powerful training in going against our usual unconscious biases, noticing not only predominant unpleasant mind states, but training ourselves to recognize more subtle, refined and skillful states of mind, including wisdom itself. So I want to go in bit deeper now into what this term wisdom is pointing to in the context of mindfulness practice. Because as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream these days, it's often presented as a simple tool for relieving stress, which of course it can be. But in the context of the Buddha's teachings, mindfulness isn't just an antidote to mental and emotional distress. It has the power to stop these states from arising in the first place through its supporting of insight. Insight being the clear seeing into the truth of how things are. So the truth that everything is constantly changing. The truth that nothing can give us lasting satisfaction and that there is no fixed permanent entity to call myself at the center of it all. So some of you may recognize those three categories, yes? Anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Yes, anicca, dukkha, anatta. These are the three universal characteristics. Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, not self. 
or to use slightly different language, the truth that everything we experience is impermanent. It's imperfect and it's impersonal. So everything is constantly changing. It's impermanent. None of it can give us lasting satisfaction. It's imperfect. And none of it is our fault, basically. It's impersonal. And the more deeply we see into these three characteristics, the more powerfully they support ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these three insights, the more we suffer. So I'd like to look at them a bit more closely now in terms of how they relate to our project of transforming fear into fearlessness. So the first one, impermanence, is a very powerful ally in reducing fear when we can consciously remind ourselves of the truth of change. So, for example, when some form of anxiety starts to arise, instead of struggling to avoid it or get rid of it, one option is to just to ride it out, knowing this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Because of the truth of change, at some point, the fear is going to disappear of its own accord. And understanding this can help release the grip of trying to control or resist the fear. Often, though, there is the tendency to collapse into the anxiety or fear and unconsciously to make it feel more solid and permanent by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. So when we're bringing mindfulness to the mind, we want to start training and noticing how we speak to ourselves about our experience. And often when we refine that listening, we hear ourselves saying things like, I'm always anxious. I never experience any relief from it. It's constant misery. Some of you are nodding. (laughs) Because words such as always and never are symptoms of what psychologists call absolutist thinking, which is an unhealthy thinking style which has been linked to anxiety and depression. So those absolute terms are really terms worth looking for in the mind. And in Buddhist understanding, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you do notice those kind of words coming up, just see if you can play with them and try changing what you're saying to something that's more accurate, more factually true. Rather than saying, I'm so anxious, I'm always anxious, try saying, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Do you hear the difference? One is a blanket statement that makes things eternal. The other leaves some space, some room, and acknowledges that not always anxious, in fact. So even just that small acknowledgement that anxiety is not as continuous as we tell ourselves can help release the grip of it slightly. But sometimes when I've suggested this to students, they try to convince me that actually I'm wrong and that their anxiety is always there, is constantly present, has been forever and always will be. So one tool that's sometimes helpful to challenge this is to, I invite people to quantify their anxiety on a scale of zero to ten. 
Um, sometimes even in the course of a meeting, if I say at the beginning, what, how intense is your anxiety now? Six, seven, eight? And then maybe a couple of minutes later, where is it now? It's down to a four. Maybe it spikes back to a nine, but at some point it's down to a three. So the more we can track that during the day, we see that it's not constantly at ten, that it actually is shifting and moving all the time. It's responding to conditions. It's impermanent. And then we also get used to noticing those times when the anxiety is less. Because the negativity bias tends to skip over those, but to actually say, wow, right now my anxiety is a one. How does that feel? Hmm. So getting the body used to experiencing less anxiety is part of this training. So the second of these three characteristics, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, the truth of imperfection, is also a very powerful ally in decreasing fear even though this truth can be a hard one to accept because we're so driven to try to make everything all right or even perfect. So most of us spend a huge amount of energy trying to control everything out there, trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make all the conditions around us, including the people around us, be exactly the way we want them to be. And there's a deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just do X or Y or Z, then I'll be happy. Yet in spite of all of that effort, not many of us can say that we've experienced that lasting happiness that we keep hoping for. Which is not to deny, of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But overall, because of the truth of impermanence, Conditions are unstable, they're constantly changing, and they're just incapable of giving us that sort of happy ever after ending that we're looking for. And sometimes there's something about this truth of dukkha, imperfection, that triggers us into even stronger perfectionism, idealism, efforts to control ourselves and others. And often we bring that same perfectionism into our Dharma practice. Unconsciously, we turn everything we do into a giant self-improvement project, one that's rooted in self-aversion and resistance to this truth of dukkha. And both this imperfection, this sorry, this perfectionism tends to fuel the sense of lack and inadequacy that we were exploring a few weeks ago. So by suggesting that we try to live more in alignment with the truth of unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean we just, oh, give up completely. What? Who cares? It's all dukkha anyway. Forget about it. That's apathy, not true acceptance. But developing a more balanced relationship to fear comes as our practice matures, as we're able to look non-judgmentally at our underlying motivations, discern what we might be able to change and accept what we can't. So there's a line in the well-known serenity prayer, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So that's really what this truth of dukkha is pointing to, specifically when it comes to fear 
We need to pay attention to any resistance to it, any expectation that it shouldn't be happening, that it's wrong, that it's bad, and it needs to be got rid of ASAP. And instead we can understand that because we're human beings with vulnerable human bodies and vulnerable human hearts and vulnerable human minds, we are going to be susceptible to fear at times. This is normal and natural. As far as I know, there isn't a human being alive who never ever experiences fear under any circumstances. And yet, as we saw in the fear lists back in week one, many of us have the tendency to take our fears very personally, to see them as our own unique shortcoming, our own unique weakness, our own unique neurosis, which again, in terms of wisdom, of insight practice, is a serious distortion of the truth. So this brings us to the third of these three characteristics, which is anatta, usually translated as not-self. And this is the understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process. It's not happening to a fixed, solid sense of self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though it often feels that way a lot of the time. And just to name that this truth of anatta for many people is the most challenging to really wrap their minds around. And it can be understood on deeper and deeper levels. Often the deepest insights into anatta require the kind of stillness and balance that happens in a retreat setting. But it is possible to develop some understanding of anatta on a conceptual level and still get practical benefits from that understanding. So, for example, you could say the wheel model that we were looking at a few weeks ago, that is one way of understanding this impersonal process. So it's one way of understanding how we create a sense of self and get caught in identification with experience by moving from the center of the wheel, the immediacy of just the body, the feeling tones, the immediacy of the mental responses, into proliferation and identification. So when we have enough presence of mind to stay closer to the center of the wheel, we can simply know anxiety, for example, as a constellation of unpleasant sensations in the body, unpleasant emotions in the heart, unpleasant thoughts in the mind. And if we pay careful attention, we can see that these unpleasant sensations are constantly arising and passing away. And the more we can just stay present with that discomfort, knowing that eventually it will pass, the less we're adding to the distress of it. And this training is what the Buddha called not adding the second dart. Are you familiar with that sutta? Famous sutta where the Buddha compared an untrained worldling, somebody who has no meditation practice, if that untrained worldling is shot by an arrow or a dart, they experience intense physical pain, but they add an extra dart of their mental reaction, sorrow, grief, lamentation, anger, distress, and so on. But the person who has training is able to not create, we could say, proliferation, and only has to deal with the pain of one dart. 
And as I often point out, we usually, when we're caught in proliferation, we don't stop with one dart. We usually add two, three, four, five, ten, fifty, a hundred darts. So we enhance the distress of that experience by identifying with it. So a lot of this training is about how to be present with our experience without adding anything extra to it, which again sounds simple in theory, but in practice can be very challenging, especially when we're working with intense emotions such as fear. So as a general rule, the more intense the emotion, the more likely it is that we're going to take it personally. And again, having a sort of mindfulness radar out for the inner language often reveals this tendency to take ownership of our fear, make it me, mine, who I am, even turn it into an identity for ourselves. So we might tell ourselves things like, I'm a highly anxious person, or I'm a complete coward, or I'm a trauma survivor, which is not to deny that those statements have some truth to them. But when they're expressed again as those more absolute defined, using that defined language, they can easily become a prison that keep us stuck in just one way of relating to the world. So we might explore ways of softening that language. For example, I'm a highly anxious person might become, under certain conditions, I have a tendency to experience anxiety. I'm a complete coward might become Fear sometimes gets in the way of me standing up for myself. And I'm a trauma survivor might become I'm learning how to navigate phases of intense fear which are sometimes triggered by painful memories. So it's a little bit more cumbersome but it's more nuanced, it's more accurate and it doesn't lock us into just one identity. And again, we're not negating the understanding that there is a person who experiences fear but we're trying to reduce the tendency to collapse our whole identity into that experience by using more nuanced language. And I want to acknowledge that we're moving into some terrain now that might be more difficult to understand for some of you. And even more experienced meditators can find themselves resistant to this invitation to challenge some of our more familiar ways of being in the world. Somewhat paradoxically, we can experience fear of fearlessness. We can experience fear of freedom. Anxiety, for example, might be uncomfortable, but at least it's a familiar discomfort. And it gives us a way to orient to the world, a perverse kind of security. So the idea of being without it at first might feel quite threatening. For example, I have a friend who... uh, different times in his life, has been susceptible to fairly intense anxiety. And during one of those more intense phases, he had signed up to do a two-month retreat. And I was a little unsure, actually he was too, whether that would be a good thing to do or not at that time. But he did it and um, he stayed the distance. And when he came out, I asked him, how was it in terms of, of the anxiety? And he said, it was incredible From the moment he arrived, all of the anxiety just totally fell away and he woke up the first morning without any trace of anxiety whatsoever. And I said, wow, how was that? And he said, terrifying. 
(laughs) And he was partly joking, but he said he then had to go through a conscious process in a way of reorienting himself to being without anxiety and get used to how that felt in the body and the heart and the mind. And he was able to do that, but it, it did take a process. So as I was researching this, I found an, uh, some lines from a poem by W.H. Auden that express this resistance to change very clearly. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. That's pretty, pretty intense. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Which might sound a bit pessimistic, but it's talking very generally about people who don't have any mind training, who don't have any tools for managing that kind of fear of change. And I just want to name that every one of us here today has already overcome a lot of that fear of change or you wouldn't be sitting here. So just in the context of this course over these five weeks, I'm confident that all of you have been facing into different forms of anxiety and fear and learning how to meet them with increasing non-reactivity and ease. And I'd like to continue exploring that movement into ease after the break, but I think for now that's probably plenty. As I said, we've covered a lot of ground, so thank you for staying with it. Uh, Thank you for your attention. And let's take a pretty short break now. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.